This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. If you follow the news, you know that right now Pope Francis is just over the northern border in Canada as he is going on a trip of of penance and reparation over the residential schools and the Catholic Church's participation in those uh, in in Canada. Today we're talking with with Brett Sockold. He is the Archdiocesan theologian for the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Regina. He's the co-host of Thinking Faith podcast, and he's got a book on Baker Academic uh, called Transubstantiation, Theology, History, and Christian Unity. Brett, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So you wrote this piece. Uh, This is the second week in a row that we've had a, a conversation about a piece that showed up on the Church Life Journal uh, from the University of Notre Dame. You wrote a piece last September, and of course, because the Pope is in in Canada right now, they have brought that back up to the front of their website and put it out for people to see again. I didn't see it the first time it came around. Uh, The piece is Guilt, Responsibility, and Purgatory, How Traditional Catholic Teaching Can Help Us Think About Truth, Reconciliation, and reparations. Uh, And you make a number of points. We could spend a a great amount of time just quoting some of the more uh, poignant, quotable lines in that. We're not going to get there just yet. But um, before we get into the meat of it, would you, from your perspective, uh, not as a spokesperson for the Archdiocese, but just as your own reflections as a Catholic, uh, unpack for those of us who might not have been following this story quite as closely, what is the fuss about uh, so that then we can go from that point into uh, the implications thereof. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a big question, and I'm I'm not an expert in in the residential schools, but I am a Canadian and a Catholic, so so I I know a bit. Um, I mean, uh, the Canadian government, uh, you know, just over a hundred years ago, I guess, um, started a policy of. Um, sort of forced education now how forced varies you know over time it, it was it's, it wasn't uniformly applied for 80 or 90 years but but basically um, uh, the idea was to um, eliminate indigenous culture by educating indigenous people in government-run schools particularly boarding schools uh, where you would live far away from your family and your community Um and uh, the the government of Canada asked the churches to participate in in the operation of these schools, and the churches said yes. Uh, and uh, the Catholic Church was the most ran the most schools. The entities of the Catholic Church, various religious orders in particular, um, ran more schools uh, than anyone else. Um, and as you might expect, uh, conditions at these schools were not good. Um, Again, it varies dramatically over decades, but in general, uh, not good. Um, and and now, uh, and lots of kids didn't make it home, uh, died. Uh, I mean, some died of uh, abuse and neglect. And many more died of disease, which is often connected with neglect. Um, uh, often those children... I think more often than not, didn't make it home or uh, buried in, in cemeteries, perhaps unmarked graves, but in, in more cases uh, with simple wooden grave markers that have since disappeared. Um, 
And so uh, the Canada has been looking at this question. Well, okay, one more thing. And of course, then the long-term consequences for for Canada's indigenous peoples uh, of of having you know people who grew up apart from their families, apart from their homes, often in abusive sort of contexts, uh, leads to sort of generational trauma and is a major contributing factor for all kinds of social markers that really hit Indigenous communities harder than than other Canadians. So statistics on addiction or crime or suicide or, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, when you start digging into personal stories, you see in the background very often there was family trauma of kids being taken away from their, their homes and, and their communities and their families. And so... Uh, there was, there was, we had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada that looked at this in, in some depth. And this was sort of the first big wave of awareness in Canadian society of, of sort of what had happened. But what happened just over a year ago is uh, in various uh, locations, people using ground penetrating radar are discovering things that are probably graves. Um, and we don't know for sure if we don't dig them up, but, but I mean, there is... We know where the graves were. We knew where to look, like uh, to some degree. Um, and the, this made national and international headlines. Now that I mean, the news reporting was quite confusing. Early reporting sometimes spoke of mass graves. Um, uh, language about unmarked graves is gives the impression that they were never marked, which may be the case some of the time, but but generally not. Um, the largest single finding was in our own archdiocese at uh, Merivale School in the Cowessus Reserve, and it was in fact a parish cemetery. Um, so, so we we actually knew. I mean, that some headstones had been removed, and there was all kinds of uh, confusion around different areas. The archdiocese had actually partnered with the reserve to fund some of the work to um, um, clean up uh, and investigate the cemetery. Um, so, so the reporting has been confusing, but, but the main point is that the discovery of the graves reignited the conversation in Canadian society about residential schools and their impact, and particularly uh, about the role of the Catholic Church in the residential schools. And so at the forefront of most of the reporting have been questions about the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. How's that for an intro? That's, that's a great intro. And this piece is is fantastic, and I, I want everyone to go. We're going to put a link on our social media to that Church Life Journal article. Uh, but as I was reading this, coming from outside of Canada, one of the things that I noticed is the principles that you touched on are principles that we see anytime that the church enters into uh, to scandal, when there is scandal given to the wider uh, community at large. And the first thing that I wanted to call attention to is this propensity for us to enter into the general discussion based on our political affiliation as opposed to looking at first principles. So you saw this playing out and you gave a little bit of a um, an encouragement and perhaps even a remedy for this, if you'd share that with us now. Yeah, well, I, it seems to me that whenever these things happen, one of the most frustrating things to watch is how Catholics struggle to articulate a particularly Catholic point of view in our engagement on these matters. But conservative Catholics manage to basically parrot the secular conservative 
view, and liberal Catholics managed to basically parrot the secular liberal view uh, almost without remainder. And so the the capacity for the church to actually make a worthwhile contribution, it, it just feels sort of neutered, you know, we just we just sort of mimic uh, the broader culture. And so what I wanted to offer in, in the piece that you referenced, I, and I'm so glad you liked it, I wanted to offer a specifically Catholic approach to these questions, you know, to just take a very specific thing, reparations. Well, your American listeners might be more familiar with um, public discussion around reparations for slavery and and a, a sort of secular conservative approach that is, you know, quite skeptical of such reparations and a, and a secular liberal approach that is maybe more open or even sort of... Um, strongly recommending such reparations, right? Um, but but from a theological point of view, like we talk about making reparation all the time, right? Like for, for people whose sins are not your own, like that's actually, like if you want to make reparation for the holy souls in purgatory, which is a very sort of pious, traditional Catholic thing to do, you don't hear Catholics saying, Oh well, you know it's not my fault that someone in the past did something wrong. Right. Like, the whole point is that that you are standing in on behalf of someone else who's a member of the communion of saints. But it, it just seems to me that this Catholic sensibility about things like the communion of saints or reparations on behalf of the sins of others or whatever, which which should just be obvious to us as Catholics completely disappears when we start engaging with the question of whether any reparations are due uh, or, mm-hmm. or appropriate or helpful or, or whatever you want to say in, in this context. And so I, I tried to write my article to say, like, as Catholics, we have theological resources to think about these. And if all we do is parrot uh, the left and right wing, you know, secular media, um, it's a total missed opportunity uh, for, for us to think about this and, and for us to actually do something helpful. And to go even deeper, our political discourse as it stands today is uh, the product of a very recent history. Uh, if you go even back 40 years and look at the political discourse, it was completely different, but we've forgotten that because of the amount of, uh, because we've been in it as it's changed. And so to be able to turn and to look towards the the theology of the church, which has its roots so far back into our history to be able to tap the richness of what the church is offering us rather than just kind of floating on top of the last 30 years of discourse and then offering that back up as our, as our solution to the discussion. Right. Well, and, and once we've identified a given segment of the political spectrum with our faith, we can think that we're being very traditional if you know and very catholic if we parrot you know certain that's that's probably more of a temptation on the conservative side right so to imagine that the conservative approach is the catholic approach uh often ends up being and and it you know it looks it looks catholic through a certain sort of contemporary lens right and it then it just misses things completely that are like deep in our tradition you know so in in the article i talk about in the old testament how the the jewish people had assemblies where they where they like confessed the sins of their ancestors and like Mm -hmm. wept and gnashed their teeth you know um over over the sins of their ancestors and somehow today we just have no 
as Catholics, we don't have any way of making sense of our relationship to the sins of our ancestors, but it's, it's extremely traditional uh, way of thinking. Well, I think partially in the West, we have uh, slowly moved ourselves out of a communal understanding of society and into society being a conglomeration of individuals. And so as we have looked more and more towards how how do my actions affect society as an individual and what do I deserve back from society as an individual, we've lost some of the sense that the structures that have been set up for us by the fact that we are a communal people, um, those have those have impact and our, our, uh, our communal response to things have impact, uh, both for the positive and for the negative. And we have to be aware of those things, uh, as we assess our responsibility, because we're not just responsible for our own actions. We are part of this community. We belong to one another, as Paul says. I, I think individualism is one of our contemporary lenses that really obscures traditional Catholic uh, approach to any any number of questions. And on this, this is very interesting. Um, it, when we think about indigenous communities in North America, um, it's often their sensibilities of community that serve as, as healthy reminders to Catholics, actually. And so a, a, a request or even sometimes phrased as a demand that the Pope apologize um, from an indigenous perspective uh, a pope is a representative of a community, and and that should that should obviously be the Catholic perspective too. But sometimes we we try to sort of shunt that to the side and say, well, this pope wasn't really responsible, and the the it's not the Catholic Church as a whole that was responsible. It was this religious order or this you know, and so then all of a sudden we're we're sort of um, making these very fine distinctions, which which are basically incoherent to people on the other side who are, who are, you know, to them, if a religious order did it, the Catholic church did it, uh, you know, and now is every single Catholic guilty? Of course not. But nobody actually thinks that like, we don't actually need to make a defense against an argument that nobody is, is claiming, but for the, for the Pope to come and say, sorry, even though it wasn't his religious order, I mean, is a, is a recognition that we're all in this together, which Catholics actually, that should be second nature to us. And so we should actually be grateful for the reminder, I think. Well, and even, even, to a further extent, and we see this also with the um, the sexual abuse crisis that that exploded in the United States back in the early two thousands. Uh, there is this desire to distance ourselves from those who who did such heinous things and say, "Well, um, I'm not part of them. They they aren't they don't represent me." And yet, as as people of faith who who are given the the commission to be ministers of reconciliation and given the commission to be um, missionary disciples, to make disciples of all nations, we have to recognize that when we go out with that name tag Catholic, uh, the actions of those who have gone before us have very real impact and in some ways damage the gospel uh, irreparably for at least that group of people who now can't but associate Catholicism and the gospel with those actions. Uh, and so we pray not only, you know, beyond reparations in a monetary sense, we pray for souls in reparation. And we pray not only for the souls of those who are harmed, but also 
praying for the souls of those who did the harming because they need reparation as well. Uh, and this is part of what it means for us all to be interconnected and part of one another. Right, right. And I mean, part of us is, is saying, well, that's, but it's not fair. It's not fair that we're tarred with that brush, you know, and, and, it, and actually it isn't. It actually isn't fair that I'm tarred and you're tarred with the brush of, of child sex abuse. But, you know, some people will, when we try to describe the doctrine of original sin, say, well, that's awful. You know, why would God hold us accountable for something? We didn't do it. I didn't eat the fruit in the garden, did you? You know, um, the doctrine of original sin isn't isn't um, saying, uh, you know, God is holding a bunch of people to account for something they never did, and therefore God is unjust. It's actually just describing the nature of sin. That it's it's automatically interpersonal, and you don't have to be the perpetrator to be implicated. The the doctrine of original sin says you're born already compromised. It, it, like before you come out of the womb, you're already caught in this web that preceded you. And is it fair? No, no, it's not fair. Um, but but it is the way that sin actually works, and so th the response is is to take on the consequences of sin that weren't your own that like that's i think that's called christianity right isn't it? i think that, that's the thing right that's the cross and that's what we're called to participate in you you cannot participate in the redemption of the world if you just say well that's not fair god already knows it's not fair he's hanging on a cross goodness sake um but you're invited to participate in his cross which yeah. redeems the world by by taking on consequences that don't rightly, uh, you know, go to you. Now, some of them do. Yeah, I mean, Jesus was innocent. You and I aren't. So at least some of the consequences we actually deserve. But the fact that a given consequence we don't directly deserve, um, like, take up your cross. And, and I mean, do, do people say false things about the church on questions like this? Has the media made some claims that are false? Sometimes egregiously false have have there been terrible things done have people burned down catholic churches largely fanned on by a media that wasn't careful and and maybe i mean i i'm in, not really in a position to judge but maybe even malicious in in this or that case maybe maybe yeah. bearing wrongs patiently is a virtue that contributes to the salvation of the world it doesn't mean we don't stand up and, and correct falsehood at, at appropriate times but it can't be an excuse to do nothing and bury our heads in the sand and not look for a genuinely Christian response to things like this. I, recently, uh, my priest was preaching a Sunday homily. I don't remember what the readings were, but he made this distinction that I hadn't quite heard put this way. Uh, but we often hear people talking, as you're mentioning, the, the horrible things that have happened even to the church, to people who didn't uh, perpetrate these evils. Uh, he talked about the difference between rights and responsibilities. And he says that rights fundamentally aren't really a Catholic idea that we don't think about our own rights. Um, we think about the rights of others typically we, because a right says, what am I owed? And our faith says, what do I owe to others? Right? So this, what is my responsibility towards others that we bear wrongs patiently, even though we have a right to not, go through those wrongs. 
still our faith calls us to something different. What are what's my responsibility to the community and even to that person who wronged me? Um, and this is a difficult thing for us to really wrestle with because we want justice. Uh, we want we want justice often for ourselves, but sometimes we get uneasy when others are asking for justice for themselves. Yeah, I mean, the, there is a time and a place to defend uh, the church against, you know, calumny <laughs> uh, or or whatever else it might be, persecution. Um, when when we have clearly been participating in something wrong, I mean, like unquestionably nitpicking around the details is not the best first move, right? Um, if, like, can we trust God enough that to that God can protect the church? If, if, if we stand up and take our lumps, you know, that, we, that we've earned, really, uh, if, if there are exaggerations or, or misstatements or whatever else uh, mixed in with that, um, can God deal with that? Or do we, does our first move need to be to defend against the little, you know, the, they got this or that detail wrong? Um, <laughs> well, it is clear to everyone that we were participating in institutional evil. You, so you know, like, what are the priorities here? With, with both the residential schools and with the sexual abuse crisis here in the United States, we see, saw and still see this rush to say, well, you can't judge the past by today's standards because everyone was doing the same thing. Um, and so, you know, we can't look at them and say, well, you know, they were just doing what society did. You have this line in the piece that I'm going to uh, read from, and, and it says, in any case, what good is a church whose moral compass is indistinguishable from that of the ambient culture? And you bring up that yes, everyone in society may have been doing those things, but because of our faith, we should have and we do know better. Right. And so f- for us to be participating in that is is an even double offense because we, even if the rest of society was engaging in in the same kind of thing in the same numbers, we should know better. Our faith puts us in a different place. Right, right. And I, I bring up the example of the eugenics movement, which was sort of contemporaneous with, with the beginnings of, of uh, this program in Canada. So early 20th century, the eugenics movement is largely the United States is where it, it was really prominent at the time. Uh, and the Catholic Church said, no way. Um, we had the the clarity from our sort of ancient... Uh, principles and moral resources to see through something that to contemporary society looked, you know, pretty plausible. And the church was like, no, that's not going to work. And now Catholics can look back on that with pride and say, you know, the Catholic church had the moral clarity to recognize something, even when most of the rest of society couldn't see it. So on the, so let's be proud of that. Great. We got that one, right. At, at almost the same time in history, we have uh, a program in Canada where, and, and there's, I, I would say from a Catholic point of view, there's two fundamental evils that we should have seen and, and rejected. There's nothing wrong with a boarding school. If right. parents want to send their kids to boarding schools and, and the education on offer is a good education, it can be a great good. I mean, the church is, has run schools for centuries and, and done a lot of service to some of the poorest 
people who couldn't have otherwise got an education or whatever else, right? Nothing wrong with the boarding school per se, but, but two things. One, the whole system was predicated on eliminating a culture, mm-hmm. which is just, just not how you do Christian evangelization. That's, that's the book of Acts, right? The, the, the fundamental fight that Paul has at the beginning is if people are going to be Christians, do they have to become Jews? Uh, and Paul says, no, they don't. They can they can maintain their own culture, their own language, their own uh, heritage, and and follow Jesus. So that I mean, that's from the beginning. And the church is at its best uh, when it encounters new cultures. Its its evangelization efforts are the, it's most successful when it adheres to that principle. And just look at the appearances of Mary throughout history. Right. Mary always shows up looking like a local. Why? We did, this is the principle of the incarnation, right? That you you don't overrule or or you know tramp down local culture, uh, but but you engage it. Uh, and and the goodness and the beauty in cultures around the world should should build up the catholicity of the church. So okay, that's the first problem is that they're predicated on wiping out a culture, and that's not the way we're supposed to do things as Catholics. And the second thing is. Um, Catholics have very strong views about parents as primary educators of children. Yes. And you there is no way we should be participating in a system that often took children away by force or at least coercion, right? Mm-hmm. Um if 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 indigenous people want to send their kids to a Catholic boarding school, God bless them. But if they don't, then there is no way there is no way we should be participating in something that that forces that and coerces uh, kids out of their uh, families and homes and communities. So, so granted, we knew those things all along. We knew about the primary duty of parents as educators, and we knew about enculturation and the gospel since the Book of Acts. Mm-hmm. So we we are we don't have a very good excuse um, when. You know, it's not like we didn't learn those things until Vatican II. Like those are those are like long time Catholic principles. And you know, there were exceptions. There were there were Catholics who recognized that this wasn't the way to go about things. But they were a tiny minority who did not manage to carry the day. Somehow, the vast majority of of I mean, the average Catholic in the pew, but also the hierarchy and the leaders of the religious orders and whatever else, mm-hmm. somehow didn't see that this is something we should not be a part of. In fact, something we should be actively working against. Somehow we missed that. Um, but our principles were there. And so it's it's actually, I'm not that concerned about getting condemned by secular standards. Mm-hmm. I'm, actually, I'm actually more concerned that we, we judge ourselves by our own standards because that's yeah. the only way we're going to learn. We've been talking today with Brad Seckled, uh, Archdiocesan Theologian for the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Regina in Saskatchewan, Canada. Uh, he's the co-host of Thinking Faith Podcast. Be a part of the ongoing conversation by joining us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. And there's much more to come right after this, so don't go anywhere.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL, and we're talking today about how we judge ourselves, how we as Catholics look to our history and to some of the events that have gone on uh, in our history, which can be uncomfortable, uh, but look at them with, uh, with clarity and honesty so that as the people of God, we can go forth and, and really go about being Christ to the world. Uh, we talked last week that the, the lay apostolate is to go out and to uh, restore the temporal order and to sanctify the world, according to Vatican II. Uh, so we're talking today with Brett Sockle um, about this recent piece in the Church Life Journal, Guilt, Responsibility, and Purgatory, how traditional Catholic teaching can help us think about truth, reconciliation, and reparations. Brett, thanks for being with us today. It's good to be here. So we see these things that have gone on in, in specific for you in Canada. We're talking about the Pope's visit to Canada as a part of this ongoing truth and reconciliation, recognizing what happened in the uh, the residential schools there in Canada, uh, the the sometimes horrific things, uh, but also just the whole principle of what those schools were being counter to the church's mission. And I want to talk a little bit about the today what we face in similar circumstances. So you mentioned in, in your piece that the church has always been about education. Wherever she goes, she builds churches. It's kind of what Schools. we do. School, thank you. Yeah. We build uh, churches too, but we do. Yeah. Right. Where wherever the church goes though, she builds schools. She she educates uh the people whom she encounters. And so we could go into a place and see Oh, here the the government is uh, wanting to have schools, and they're going to help fund it. And they entered, I think, in some ways, uncritically into that program right. because there was some overlap without looking at those first principles. And I think today we we have that same temptation uh, sometimes in our areas of where we have. Catholic charities or Catholic relief services and governments have all of this money and we see all the good that we can do with it. But sometimes that money comes with strings attached that we think, oh, well, you know, I can, I can tiptoe that line and avoid the difficulty. Um, but sometimes prudence would say, is this really, even though it's more money, is this really the best way to go about fulfilling our mission as the church? And I, I call to mind, I think, in the Old Testament where there's this story about um, the king, whoever was the king in Israel at that time, inviting a neighboring nation into the tabernacle, into the, into the uh, sanctuary of the temple, and showing them all the riches um, in, in a way to build an alliance. But instead of building an alliance, that, that foreign nation came in and wiped them out and stole mm. everything. And there's this sense of, oh, well, let me show you what we can do for you and with you without thinking critically or, or trusting in God's hand for provision to help us carry out our mission, uh, looking to foreign sources, or in this case, our own government sources, in a way that could be harmful uh, if it makes us uh, compromise on our principles in order to do it. Right. Yeah, I mean— <laughs> It's it's tough if if you're if you're let's say you're a Catholic bishop or a religious order right and and you're looking to build schools. Uh, in fact, it should it should be said that there were Catholic schools that predated uh, the the government of Canada's uh, Indian residential schools program. Um, 
I mean, right here in our archdiocese, there was one in Labrette that actually uh, offered instruction in Cree. So in the indigenous language, it was with the uh, uh, residential schools program of the government that 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 language was then banned in in school instruction, right? Because part part of I mean, one of the first things you do when you're trying to get rid of a culture is you you make people forget their their language, right? So there were there were Catholic schools before this, of course. So yeah, you're 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 a religious order, you're a bishop, and you've got a school, or you or you are trying to build a school, and along comes someone with a lot of money and says, "We'll give you money." To run the school, you you can see why that's of interest, um, and that, but if you dig deeper and you say, oh sorry, what what's what are the premises behind this school? Uh, oh, children are going to be taken away from their families by force. Oh, you know, people are going to uh, have their language stripped away. For example, uh, maybe we, no, we can't participate in that. But um, yeah, I mean, what's the what's the contemporary? analog you know are it, it, there were um adoption agencies in mm. the united states that that have declined uh government money or maybe even i i don't know the details uh maybe even in some cases had to you know close up shop uh because they wouldn't uh do adoption on the on the government's you know um ideas basically would only you know do adoption with a, a family with a mother and a father i, I think was the the yeah. question at issue there right i mean i'm i, I didn't come prepared with this example but i'm just i'm right. casting about for for uh you know a contemporary example where where catholics turned down you know money to do actual good work mm -hmm. uh because you know it was gonna go against our principles right and, and you know 100 years from now those the people who turn down the money are going to have fewer regrets than the ones who took it. Well, I think of, um, I think of mother Carini who traveled opening hospitals or, or, um, Catherine Drexel who went and opened up an, a number of, of schools, but she opened up those schools, I believe on the reservations where it wasn't a sense of go, taking the children elsewhere, but actually being there in the midst of the people. Or I think of, um, St. Damien of Molokai, who goes into a, a leper colony and identifies with them so fully that he eventually ends up with that same disease and lives among them until he dies. There's this sense of um, the faith is at its most beautiful when we enter into the suffering of others and and sit there with them and identify and empathize and and give consolation not when we come in from the outside and impose things. Well, yeah, and it's and so I guess the question is is like sort of whose side are we on, right? When 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 Paul is going out into the the sort of Greek Mediterranean world, um watch his interaction with the local religions. It's it's fascinating because you know, so we know the famous instance in Athens where he says, you know, I see that you're very pious people and you've got this altar to the unknown God, and you know, let me tell you about that. So on the one hand, Paul is willing to to find what is good and true in the local culture and then make the connection with Christianity and engage in that kind of healthy way. And then there's other times, uh, you know, Paul almost gets himself killed in Ephesus. Uh, for for um, 
confronting the temple. To, is it the temple of Artemis, I think? And the silver trinkets and that sort of thing. But if you go digging into where Paul gets himself in trouble for critiquing the local religious practice, it is generally when the local religious practice is part of oppressing the people. You know, if you think about the the poor young woman who had the demon cast out of her because she was being used as a medium or whatever, yes. right? Here you have a, a young woman who's being oppressed by this sort of superstitious practice and marginalized. And then Paul steps in and calls it for what it is and gets himself in a lot of trouble. But in Athens, he does this much more, you know, oh, I see you're very pious and, and you seek the truth. And Well, this is the same no matter where you go in the church. Is any culture, not, and, and we need to remember this applies to our contemporary culture and not just sort of exotic, you know, indigenous right. or whatever culture, but every culture, um, there's going to be like truth and goodness and beauty to be affirmed and built upon. And, and there's going to be oppression and marginalization. And so, so the church, I mean, this is a very, if, if the government of Canada is participating in the oppression and marginalization of a people's, what side does the church find itself on? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, it's, it's really quite, it's that simple. It should be that simple. You draw a line here um, for us in the piece towards the sacrament of confession. And we are always uncomfortable when we look at sin. We're uncomfortable when we look at the sins that we are personally responsible for. I don't know anyone who really likes to sit down with a thorough examination of conscience before they go to the sacrament of confession. It's, yeah, it's not my favorite. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> Specifically, when you get into one that starts asking questions that are outside of those standard sins that we find ourselves repeating over and over, but we find one that really, kind of really digs in, we're uncomfortable with that. And I think to the same extent, we're uncomfortable looking at the the sins of those who have gone out in the name of the church. Uh, and so it's easier to to brush it aside and to say, well, this wasn't me, or the times were different then, or whatever the case is. You have this uh, paragraph I want to read, that sins have consequences, and no one is truly sorry for sin who does not wish to counter the effects of their evil actions on the world. Not to put too fine a point on it, the sacrament of confession and penance is the sacrament of truth and reconciliation. Uh, and I found that to be well, I I underlined it and I copied and pasted it so we could read it. I found it to be really insightful um, for us to look at what do we do when we're going to to reconcile ourselves to God, uh, and then now let's realize that our sins can be larger; they can be corporate. And now let's also realize that sin has a component not only between me and God, but also between me and my neighbor, and between us as a church and our society at large. Yeah, I mean it. In, in some ways, it just seems obvious to me that Catholics should, our practice of the sacrament of confession should give us clarity on some of these things. Uh, and it, it surprises me that people who are you know, very vocal in their support of the sacrament of confession, and everyone should go more often, um, at least some of these people uh, really struggle with uh, the church, you know, telling the truth and saying we're sorry in a public mm -hmm. forum. And I, I mean, you know, and I, I appreciate there is a difference between an individual sinner and a, an institution that speaks on behalf of, you know, sinners who are, who are dead and gone. Um, I, 
I appreciate that there's a distinction, but then that goes back to this this discussion we had earlier about how the Bible is pretty clear that if you're in communion with people, then bearing the the results of their sin is, is like that's that's the nature of things. That's original sin. That's the history of Israel. That's Christ on the cross. That's us making reparations for the holy souls in purgatory. Like this isn't a new concept that we're just like applying now to say that the church, you know, you and me, Joe Catholic, have some responsibility for those who've gone before us. I mean, we're not guilty of their sins, but we're responsible for the situation that we find ourselves and the church in. I mean, if the current members of the church are not responsible for the situation of the church, who is? Like, if, if the current Pope can't say or do anything, and if you and I can't say or do anything, well, then that's the end, isn't it? I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, I don't know what alternative is being presented uh, besides us taking responsibility for, for how we find things. And here's the thing. When I listen to Indigenous Canadians talk, they get it. They're not, they don't think you and I personally kidnapped children from the reserve and took them to the school. They like, no one's claiming that, but they are saying, look, here's the situation we find ourselves in. And our, our two communities, uh, our, our relationship is wounded because of this. So won't you um, come alongside and listen and, and bear your share of the responsibility for the way things are? They're not, they're not actually condemning me or, or, or accusing me of something I didn't do. So I don't, I don't need to defend myself against that if, if, if I'm not actually even being accused of it. Well, and I look at this, you mentioned earlier the, the corporal works and the spiritual works of mercy. It seems to me that even if, if we can look at this in the light of they are not accusing us, but this is a people who are hurting and wounded and our responsibility as Catholics, whoever is hurting and wounded, whether it was the Catholic Church or people representing the Catholic Church who hurt them or someone else external, is to sit with, to listen to, and to provide consolation and companionship to those who are going through that kind of difficulty. That we offer mercy in a, in, in spiritual sense and in a very physical and corporal sense to meet the needs of those who are wounded. And so rather than taking offense that they are wounded by someone that we're that, that we have connection to oughtn't we be with the poor and be with the the wounded and and doesn't scripture tell us to mourn with those who mourn is i mean isn't this just central to our faith yeah and that that's kind of, i mean i didn't go into into that detail uh, on, on those questions in the article but but that's basically the point of the article is like yeah, this is this is central. This is this is how we do it. This isn't new things we're being asked how to do. We have the categories for thinking about this. And I think, I mean, one of the things people worry about, um, you know, if we admit error, is the credit the credibility of the church will be compromised if we don't sort of stand up and fight, you know, against every um false accusation we see in the secular media. Um but but actually, the, the fighting over every little false thing that misses the forest for the trees actually does incredible damage to the yeah. credibility of the church. Whereas the things you're describing, mourning with those who mourn, uh, is, is where the church gets any credibility it has, is, is when it is true to its own identity and, and mission. And when I, 
when I encounter indigenous people, we, we have some, some great work happening in our archdiocese. We have a, a, in addition to our archbishop who is, you know, does a lot of work on this. We have a, a sister who, who's that's her whole ministry is his work with indigenous communities and truth and reconciliation. And when you, when you encounter the community uh, around her indigenous and non-indigenous who, who have spent time walking together uh, and who are not afraid to talk about um, woundedness on the one hand and not afraid to hear about woundedness on the other hand, um, mm-hmm. it's beautiful and compelling I mean, it's it's real ministry, and it gives uh, our our message, to, you know, our claim to be, um, you know, ministers of reconciliation. Uh, it, it gives it real gravitas. It, it gives it credibility. But the the nitpicking with the secular media, the, I mean, the secular media is going to say what they're going to say, you know, right. and they're going to be wrong about the church a lot of the time. And there's a time to, I mean, I've even offered corrections here today, but but to just to make that the central focus of this just seems so counterproductive, yeah. you know? Yeah. We've been talking today with Brad Seckled, uh, Archdiocesan Theologian for the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Regina in Saskatchewan, Canada. Uh, he's the co-host of Thinking Faith Podcast, and he's got a book on Baker press called Transubstantiation, Theology, History, and Christian Unity. That's the thing we're going to talk about in our Patreon segment with him. Thank you so much for joining us, Brett. Oh, you're welcome. It was great to be with you. If you missed any part of my conversation with Brett, or you want to go back and listen to it again, or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And as I mentioned, there's more to my conversation with Brett that we're making available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air. And in gratitude, we give them a few extra questions with our guest, uh, about a 10-15 minute segment, depending on the week. You can learn more about that by going to OutsideTheWalls.com and clicking that Patreon link there in the menu bar. Now. Let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and church history. That's the sound of our Verbum library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching, putting the magisterium at your fingertips by linking Scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, biblical commentaries, magisterial documents, and so much more. You can learn more at Verbum.com. Today's reading from Scripture comes from the book of the prophet Micah, Chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you. O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? That reading comes from the book of the prophet Micah, chapter 6. And if we were to contemporize that today, if we were to ask the same questions that Micah is rhetorically asking himself, What would it be for us? Because, of course, we don't still have that same sacrificial system uh, because Christ is now the one sacrifice once and for all. 
but we do still have things that we think in some way are are better offerings or more holy offerings or more pious offerings to give to God. Uh, as we're looking at the conversation today, what are the things that we take pride in or feel like we are obligated to offer to God, whether that be uh, standing up in defense of the indefensible uh, or uh, any number of things that that we would put maybe our our hope and our trust in rather than doing these simple things that he's called us to, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk in humility with God. These are the things that we are called to, and these are the things that actually will make a difference in drawing people to the gospel when they see through our actions uh, the, the presence of Christ with us, rather than simply looking at us and seeing the same kinds of machinations that they would see in in other people who would be seeking power. From the outside, does it look like we're seeking power, or does it look like we're going out uh, to care for those who are marginalized and oppressed, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God? Our reading from Church History Today comes from a sermon by St. Cesarius of Arles. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. My brothers and sisters, sweet is the thought of mercy, but even more so is mercy itself. It is what all men hope for, but unfortunately, not what all men deserve. For while all men wish to receive it, only few are willing to give it. How can a man ask for himself what he refuses to give to another? If he expects to receive any mercy in heaven, he should give mercy on earth. Do we all desire to receive mercy? Let us make mercy our patroness now, and she will free us in the world to come. Yes, there is mercy in heaven but the road to it is paved by our merciful acts on earth. As Scripture says, Lord, your mercy is in heaven. There is therefore an earthly as well as a heavenly mercy, that is to say, a human and a divine mercy. Human mercy has compassion on the miseries of the poor. Divine mercy grants forgiveness of sins. Whatever human mercy bestows here on earth, divine mercy will return to us in our homeland. In this life, God feels cold and hunger in all who are stricken with poverty. For remember, he once said, What you have done to the least of these, my brothers, you have done to me. Yes, God, who sees fit to give his mercy in heaven, wishes it to be a reality here on earth. What kind of people are we? When God gives, we wish to receive. But when he begs, we refuse to give. Remember, it was Christ who said, I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. When the poor are starving, Christ too hungers. Do not neglect to improve the unhappy conditions of the poor if you wish to ensure that your own sins be forgiven you. Christ hungers now, my brethren. It is he who deigns to hunger and thirst in the persons of the poor. 
And what he will return in heaven tomorrow is what he receives here on earth today. What do you wish for? What do you pray for, my dear brothers and sisters, when you come to church? Is it mercy? How can it be anything else? Show mercy, then, while you are on earth, and mercy will be shown to you in heaven. A poor person asks you for something. You ask God for something. He begs for a morsel of food. You beg for eternal life. Give to the beggar so that you may merit to receive from Christ. For he it is who says, Give, and it will be given to you. It baffles me that you have the impudence to ask for what you do not want to give. Give when you come to church. Give to the poor. Give them whatever your resources will allow. That reading again comes from a sermon by St. Cesarius of Arles. And here is the crux of the matter. Christ is, is present to us in the poor and the oppressed. Christ is asking for something from us. He's hungry, asking for food. As we see this in Matthew chapter 25, he's thirsty and asking for drink, naked and asking for clothing, poor and asking for relief. And we have to be willing to see Christ in the poor. In fact, I think it's Chrysostom who says, um, the one who cannot see Christ in the poor will not find Christ in the chalice. And so if we truly long to see and experience the presence of the Lord in a real and lasting way, we have to be willing to search for Christ in the poor, to give out of our means, to go to those places where the people are oppressed and marginalized and put to the side, and to embrace them as we embrace Christ, to welcome them as we would welcome Christ. And I heard this recently. It's not even necessarily the poorest of the poor among us, what we do to the least of these we do on to Christ, but look to the person who is the least in your eyes, whoever that happens to be, and choose in that moment to see Christ in that person and do justice to them, love kindness toward them, and walk in humility with your God. Be a part of the ongoing conversation by joining us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. This week, we're going to take a look at that piece on the Church Life Journal, Guilt, Responsibility, and Purgatory, how traditional Catholic teaching can help us think about truth, reconciliation, and reparations. Once you've read through that, come and leave a comment. Let's have a conversation uh, over the contents therein. Maybe you agree with it. Maybe you have something to add to it or have a question or two. Let's join into that conversation together. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Lexi and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link and join their numbers. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.